Mom Jeans podcast. I'm Nicole, and today we have a guest. You want to introduce yourself? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, my name is Lori. <laughs> and you and have two, right? I have two, two yes. What are yeah. their ages? They are four and almost two. So we're yeah, coming right up on that. Yeah, he is, I was about to say, when is his birthday? In April. That's right. He's only a right month. Up on it. He's only a month older than my youngest. Right. Right. Which is wild. I know. Because that means we almost have two year olds. I know. It's crazy because I you know, like the age progression, it just happens. But then I look at your stuff and I'm like, Oh my goodness, he can't be that old now. Right? Like it, it happens so slowly for us, but as we're looking at other people's stuff, it just in a snap. Yeah, it's like jumps. Yeah. It yeah. totally is. <laughs> I was looking at old pictures last night because, well, you know, the inevitable, your phone is too full of pictures, so you have to go through and delete some or back some Mm -hmm. up. And I got to this time last year, and, you know, he was, what, 10 months old? (laughs) And I was just like, what is happening? (laughs) I was like, he couldn't even walk. He, like, our my cat still lived indoors because once he started walking, she launched herself as an outdoor cat because she hates him and I mean seriously like she's gonna be 13 in April and she relocated herself and reinvented herself as an outdoor cat because she can't stand him which is so funny because he's the third which means she literally chose him as her that's the line of her nemesis yeah the straw that broke the camel's back not the other two children in the home not him. And not any of the other pets you've had. Him. Mm-hmm. Man. Say that- she was not playing around. Yeah. No, she was she was done. She was really, really done. Um, and I love that for her because, you know, we just really love the boundary where she's just like done. <laughs> she has her own you've personality. Had- she always has. Oh man, she does. She goes to our neighbor's house. And pretends like she's dying and pretends like she's like she lays on the ground and howls until they come out and like pet her and feed her. And like we've lived here for two years now. So like they understand by this point. But for the first like, well, for the first like six months that she was outside, they were like, what is going on with her? Is she sick? I mean, my beautiful neighbor is just like this really wonderful person. And she is just like do you need me to help take care of her? Do you, are your hands full? Do you, I mean, like I can take over taking care of her if she needs extra support, you know, like does she what need is to go this to the... girl doing to this cat? <laughs> exactly. And of course, you know, you know, this, she is, you know, like 20 pounds. She's incredibly overweight. Um, so she looks and then of course like she has allergies and now she's put herself outside so she's covered in just like yuck because she's like itchy and her hair's falling out and I'm just like <laughs> I promise you I'm a good cat owner I just she she's just not decided a good cat. <laughs> her life was over the moment he started walking yeah she was willing like, to done. sacrifice all of the pain and <laughs> exactly I'm done yeah. that's mm-hmm. fine I'm done Oh, it's really funny. But uh, he is, of course, devastated because the other two, like Rory, Rory's the only person whose name we usually say on the podcast. 
because she's okay. old enough to consent. Um, right. She loves cats. And so she was like, used to sleep in the same bed with Rory. Like, right. Jinx was all over her. But um, my stepson, no. Like, the cat didn't look at him. He didn't look at the cat. They're not friends. They don't really talk. But but she still lived in the house with him. <laughs> right. It's just something about... She's like, I'm done. We're, do- we're good. And then, of course, Rory went to college, and she was like, I second my choice. This is another reason. <laughs> another reason right. to commit She's to like, this. There's nothing, there's nothing holding me there anymore. <laughs> yep. Nope. We're done. Um, so I have transitioned out of working in the mental health adjacent to social work field. So mm-hmm. I was, you know... Like, when you and I lived in the same location, I was working in a shelter. We were doing, like, you know, working with, like, really vulnerable populations and domestic violence and human trafficking. Um, And you were working where, exactly? Because you were doing, like, legit social work. Because I am not a social worker. I am, like, a mental health professional. Like, they're, like, yin and yang. I mean, they're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I know all that it is intertwined. Yes, but I do know that there is a very specific population of licensed clinical social workers who are like, you are not doing social work. You're not a social worker. And it is and very that... important as a distinction because it right. is hard to be a licensed clinical social worker, but you can still do social work and mental health in the social work field without being a social worker. So where were you in that? Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so when we were there, I didn't have any licensure. Before you get your master's, you can't be licensured at all. Um, Well, in most states. Um, So I just had my bachelor's in social work, and I was working um, with CASA initially. um, That's right. Okay. Yeah, so if if you don't know, CASA is court-appointed special advocates, and they work with um, kids who have some extreme cases going throughout the court system. Um, a lot of them are looking at whether or not parental rights should be terminated, um, and the CASA is supposed to be an advocate for the child. Um, I will say not every arm of CASA works that way, So yeah. um, but that is their intent and their function. Um, and not every court system wants them to work that way. So you can see how things already are getting manipulated. <laughs> yeah. And taken the system, out. It, it, having worked. So after moving from like the, so like the, you know, the more intense, like, um, shelter work that I was doing and then moving to Nashville when I did like the family intervention, um, mm-hmm. specialist job, like we walked with the families through the legal system in a completely different way than we originally, than I originally did. Cause before it was protection orders and reporting abuse and police reports. And then here it was like, you're already in the system. You're deciding what happens, like where the conclusions are going to land. Like, is there going to be a termination right. of parental rights? Is this child going to stay in foster care? Is this child going to be adopted? Is this family allowed to adopt this child? You know, that kind of, so it was like right. two very different ends of the spectrum. And I agree with what you said, where there are different arms of the legal system that are like, I know you're supposed to be objective about this, but what do you think? And it's like, All right. I can't say that. <laughs> Yeah, it's not and my it's so, choice. 
Right. And it's so interesting because CASA functions very uniquely. Like it's a nonprofit. It's all volunteer driven. And then you have your um, your workers that basically review volunteer reports and make sure that volunteers aren't overstepping their bounds. So it's kind of on an honor system. And if a, so since it doesn't like it does have to follow laws, right? Like the laws that are set in place, but not to the same extent as like a guardian ad litem or, um, you know, the attorneys that are part of it and DHS um, or DCFS. Um, and so it's it's probably the most m- easily manipulated arm yeah, of so- what's happening. The softer side of it. Yes. And um, because judges choose when to appoint a CASA. That's mm-hmm. that's really the only time. Like, you can't step in and say, hey, we were... Because you can go observe court um, if you work with CASA. And so um, you can't step Which in is- and say, hey, that was a really messy case. Would you like us to work on it? Um, the judge <laughs> hey, just man, has to you say... Might need some help. <laughs> right, right. The judge just has to say, like, I believe that this case needs more insight. I would like more information. And so... That is all based on the judge being honorable and isn't the that, isn't <sighs> that crazy how much in family court there is and I, I we may have to have like an entire section of this sometime. <laughs> um, because the judges are unilateral in so many ways. And that can be a good thing where like they mm-hmm. can um like I specifically had a case I was involved in where a guardian ad litem was not following any ethical principles, had gotten kind of caught up in some family drama, um, admitted openly that she was herself triggered by something and that was coloring her views. Um, And we had to fight to get the child an attorney ad litem. And that's a completely different person where instead of this kind of objective view, an attorney ad litem is a child's lawyer. They do what the child is saying. And that's a very particular case. But the only reason we could get that is because we were able to go to the judge and say, like, hey, this person is not doing their job. We need you to override them and give us the attorney ad litem. And that was just bonkers to me that, like, it literally came down to the guardian ad litem being a woman with an opinion and the judge being a woman with an opinion and whichever one you convince is the person holding this child's rights in their hands. And it was just, I, I know that we have checks and balances. And part of both of our roles were to exist in that checks and balances. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. there was a woman signing a piece of paper. And that child's right to have a say in what was going on in their life was just right. there in their hands. Bonkers. Yes. Completely bonkers. Yeah, we and we hold like so much responsibility. And I think it so quickly gets, um, I think so many professionals very quickly get cold to what the realities are. And um, maybe kind of forget that they're working with little humans and families and very significant lifelong impacts. Because, I mean, we know what happens, we see the research what and what happens when a child is separated from their family. Um, And it is just not (laughs) what we would hope and so often the barriers that they face are simply taken care of if people just have access to resources um yeah 
but yeah, the judges have just an absurd amount of control, it seems like at times. And it is often what it comes down to is they'll set parameters in place, but there are times when things come down to personal moral decisions, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, there are a lot of things you can do to make sure that someone's on the right track and, you know, whether they need to seek services for addictions um, or they just need help with housing. Obviously those things are very clear and cut, like very clear cut, but then there are other things where it is shocking the amount of freedom they have to make a choice yeah for I will these never forget I will never forget I was in court for a different case you know they kind of try them not try them but you know you you're all kind of in family court you're all in the gallery together right like yeah. it's like you're waiting for your court case to be called so you're watching other cases which it's is like yeah it's like traffic court, kind of right? insane. Like- <laughs> it is traffic court is the other that's the other time where you're literally just <laughs> sitting there open waiting right um and you're literally having to explain to this child like I know you know that person from school but just try not to like eavesdrop (laughs) that was always my job because my job was to (laughs) sit with the child and be like please don't repeat everything that you hear today at school in 30 minutes when you go back um but like I will never forget trusting a 10 year old's discretion here (laughs) exactly and I will never forget I was at court one day and it was 3 30 in the afternoon on a Friday And a judge was kind of waffling back and forth on if this child could return home or if this child needed to go into um, emergency placement. And I will never forget the DCS worker stood up and she said, respectfully, we don't have a home to take her to. So please weigh in your decision today the safety of the child, but also the fact that this child has to exist for the next three days in whatever you decide in the next 10 minutes. And I had so much respect for that worker because she reminded the judge, yes, safety is so important in this case. And yes, something can happen in the blink of an eye that can jeopardize this child's safety. But also, this child will be sleeping on the floor in offices. I mean, this is blanket knowledge in America that children sleep on the floor of DCS offices all the time. But she was literally saying, like, this child will go to a DCS office and sleep on the floor for the entire weekend. Which also means a worker will be away from their family sleeping on the floor of a DCS office based off of what you decide in the next 10 minutes. And I... I remember just thinking, like, it was 100% a catch-22. Because for the judge, they're thinking, I have to make the best decision for safety. But that is really easy to rubber stamp. Safety, covering everyone's butts. You know, like, let's just make the safest choice. But then the actual logistics of, you know, it's not just paperwork. There are people who have to make this happen at 3.30 on a Friday until we can get back in court on a Monday or a Tuesday um, and actually have these decisions. And that is always going to be one of the most fascinating things in the world um, to me because it's true. Like you have, you have to find, it's not like we have, um, (laughs) I had this worker that I worked with 
who was always like, I kind of wish we had orphanages. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? <laughs> and her logic was like, instead of having a stack of private homes for foster care that you have to go through and do all this stuff with, she's like, I wish I just had a safe place to just mm -hmm. take them so that at least, and I was just like, what a weird argument. But <laughs> you can you can kind of see it again in her very black and white mind. And of course, she was not, she was a legal advocate. So, you know, there's right. again, kind of that separation. She had a little extra right. distance. Um, but like, I've always had that come up every once in a while again of like, well, that would be, you know, there was a, there was an ease there of just checking the one location for safety <laughs> right? instead of all of these different, you know, privatized kind of foster care. Cause in Nashville where I worked, you didn't really have, you know, state organized foster homes. They were farmed out to these different companies that then mm -hmm. had workers and foster homes and which was a whole other regulatory, like it just yeah. keeps getting more and more convoluted the more we try to improve the system. And it's still right. good to try to improve it, but it just gets messier. <laughs> right. I know. I've always said, like, I've always thought, and this is like, you you know this as a teenager even. Like, I knew this as a teenager. This system, especially, so I live in Oklahoma, and it is MS. <laughs> yeah. It is terrible. And we've known it for decades, and the federal government has said, get your act together. And we still haven't because the wheels of government turn slowly. Um, but even as a teenager, I'm like, okay, why don't we just start from scratch? Why do we need to like, like, yes. Okay. Let's go right back. Down. Certain laws. Yeah. Like certain laws and regulations and stuff like that on how these things are done. Those were put in place for a reason. I'm not saying like, let's just get rid of those. But let's see how we can rebuild the system that actually benefits the kids. And because I think we have a different priority than when we started this. The yeah. idea then was we must protect children at all costs. But now we see the trauma involved. And, you know, as yeah. soon as we remove children from their families and we see the long term effects of, well, we thought we were protecting them. But actually, we were making it worse. Like, we yeah. have more research now. We have more information. We, And so we c shouldn't keep playing off of the old information. We shouldn't keep building these things. So, because the system is so convoluted. There are so many people involved. Even in the courtroom, it feels overwhelming, the number of voices that are involved. Oh, and yeah. they're all, like, on behalf of someone, right? Like, those people mm -hmm. aren't even the ones speaking. Um and so yeah, it does. You have it feels... to have work. You have to prepare this paperwork, give it to the guardian ad litem. And then, oh, if the guardian ad litem is in a different case and can't stand up in court, you're not only presenting your stuff, you're presenting their stuff. Good luck. Um, <laughs> and the judge is like, why am I speaking to you? And you're like, well, because there's another case with another kid and that person's stuck in that courtroom and they won't let them leave because they're in the middle mm. of talking. So I just got a text message. Congratulations. And like. <laughs> It's just wild. So when you left CASA, where did you go next? Um, I ended up working. Um, I I did great administration. So I was a special programs coordinator with, um, sorry, Community Clinic of Northwest Arkansas. So I worked with Komen and Cancer Challenge at that time. And I was much more hands-off during that period. Um, so it was a lot more... <laughs> grant data and reporting and fundraising um 
And I, I will admit, I did love certain aspects of that. Um, just being I able do love, to do. I do love like grant fun. writing. It's a very special, like, it's a, it's a very special version of like persuasive writing. <laughs> it's a yes. lot of fun. It is. And, you know, I always like swore because, okay, one of my internships was in grant writing. Then I was asked to apply to that job and I did. Um, And I did it for a year and I was like, I've never want to do grant writing again. Like it's horrible. I hate it. And now I find myself like missing it because there's something about like the research and being able to put that tangible information out there to people and seeing like, okay, look, certain things aren't going to work anymore. Let's try this differently. Now, my previous grant was very much not that way. It was like kind of a set in stone kind of thing because yeah, we had like been we're working just with reapplying. them in a cancer challenge. Yeah, exactly. It was like a yearly thing. And so in that sense, it was very boring. And I spent most of my time just clicking in new data. <laughs> and so yeah. I that part of it was really awful because I missed the human interaction. I missed working with people. Um. So I spent a year there, um, and then I took some time off from social work. (laughs) Yeah? So what did that look like? I moved to China (laughs) and taught for two years. (laughs) What did that look like? I just left the country. (laughs) I left America behind Mm -hmm. because no thank you. Uh, Um, Yeah. And, you know, every day I regret coming back. I was about to ask, how do you feel like your time in China as a teacher? Because obviously, were you still working with, like, children or were you working with adults in China? I was working with children. So actually, it is really interesting because so much of my social work information and, like, everything I learned came into practice while I was a teacher. You know, and I think any any social worker or any mental health worker would tell you like when you're working with children, if you have that background, it's going to help. You're inevitably going to use it. Um, and our school which is, was small. Oh, which sorry. Is where we're going with this because yes. I truly believe that if parenting had a manual, there would be an entire section. That's just yes. like a, a condensed version of what you learn in the mental health and social work adjacent, like family service work. Um, right. Because, like, I always say, like, parenting does have a manual, but you have to go to college to get a child development and social work degree. <laughs> right. You have, yes. Then you have your parenting manual. Yay. Exactly. Exactly. And so that was, like, it was so interesting seeing how those things fit together. Um, and, you know, we were working very closely with the families. The families were very involved. Um, they put a heavy emphasis on education. So, um, they really wanted to know how their kids were doing and they, um, you know, it was, it was really interesting cause you have the cultural aspect as well of like, um, well, you know, I think that they're kind of upset. They'll be okay. You know, there were certain things <laughs> where it was like, oh yeah, it doesn't matter. It's fine. And so you're like trying to break, you know, not, not that they didn't care about their kids because they love their kids very much. That's why they put such a heavy emphasis on education because that yeah. is the, that is the key to a lot of them. And we were working at an international school, so it wasn't just Chinese students. Um, but education is the key to a good future. And so that is their way of like very deeply loving them. And you see this love take form in different ways, in different cultures and different places. Yeah. Um, and so that was and really like, interesting. Mm-hmm. That was like a really fun part of working there um, and getting to interact with families and getting to work with these kids and 
of course, my brain is, you know, trending towards the social emotional. And, you know, as I'm working as a teacher, I'm like, let's make sure we include these things and that you guys are healthy. And, you know, that your brain is primed to actually take in new information. Um, That's such a big part of teaching. And I really want to explore that more. Um, I'm working on a course right now. I'm launching a course that's basically like preparing your pandemic preschooler. And it's a little late. It was supposed to come out last. It was supposed to come out last year. Um, And, you know, I have a two year old. So, of course, that didn't happen. But it was it's all based on the fact that our children and really all ages of children. But there's a giant two year gap in social emotional learning. Like even if their education, which I live in Tennessee and we have gotten so many dings right now because their education did not stay on track. But um, and I think that's probably true across the board for a lot of states, especially kind of the southern area that we're in. Mm -hmm. Tornado Alley. Yep. Yep. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) it is really interesting because so much of my course is like you don't have to teach your child that you're AB, their ABCs. There is a teacher in the room who has wonderful skills to teach your child what they need to know. Yeah. The problem is right now that your child will enter that classroom not able to learn unless you can help them reach the level that they need to be able to sit still, to be able to stay nourished with food, to be able to remain calm and regulated. I mean, I saw a wonderful statistic a couple years ago and then checked it and it's still updated that kindergartners, uh, kindergarten teachers across the board identify um, ability to regulate emotions as the number one kindergarten readiness skill. And then I think about all of the kids that I've worked with and all of the kids that I've seen my kids go to school with and even my own experiences in school as long as, as long ago as those were, um, (laughs) you think about those kids who couldn't regulate themselves. You think about those kids who stood out as not necessarily problem children, but as children who didn't do as well or didn't fit in as well. And a lot of times it was because they didn't have the ability to even, even if they weren't healthy, they couldn't even mask it. They couldn't even stay on this kind of plane of existence. And so that is literally what my course is about is like, while you're thinking about registering your child for preschool and here's all the questions to ask, here's everything else that we probably need to make sure that your child can do so that when they go to preschool, they have the opportunity to learn all of their numbers and their colors and their stuff that they will need for education at large. Um, And I've really enjoyed putting it together because I do have an almost six-year-old and I did go through this with him when he was four and we did sit down and so much of it So much of that course, I was literally writing alongside getting him ready for preschool. Um, And I totally got my reward because when he got his preschool in or when he got his little report card in December, uh, his teacher was literally like, he is really doing well with his letters, with his counting, with his stuff, because he can sit there a little bit longer. Because even when he's having a bad day, he can... um, and, you know, there's there's different things going on with him and potential neurodivergency and things like that. But it's really wonderful to hear that as somebody who 
so prioritized that of like, we didn't have to sit down and harp on the ABCs. We didn't have to sit down and harp on him being able to count to 30 or 20 or whatever the rules are. Um, And so like, I love that you in your teaching experience kind of were able to infuse that where, like you said, the parents love their children and they're thinking that education is the path to success. And it is in so many ways. It opens so many doors. But as a teacher, you also know that education is not worth as much if you can't use it, if you can't access it, if you can't sit there and be able to receive it. Um, And so I kind of love that. And I do wish that we saw that with more teachers, that they could kind of see. And I think there's this huge boost right now where people are trying to emphasize social emotional learning right but obviously we're in America and it's lacking by like a good 20 right (laughs) yeah and you have some states that are like actually putting it into their curriculum and expecting it to be something that teachers are teaching and some states that are now saying like like my state is trending towards social emotional learning is bad right like these things they act like it's bad And, you know, these are the things that prime their brain, that prepare them to take in new information. And yeah, it was, it was really interesting. It was so nice in a lot of ways being at that school because we were a small school. We had fewer students. We had our standards that we had to meet, but there was also a lot of freedom, um, I think, to just be there as a human being for our students And, um, and that's, I think the thing that we, like, my husband was a teacher there as well. And that's the thing that we miss the most is we got to view them as more of a whole person because we weren't hit by the same constraints of the American classroom. Um, and so, and their, their parents were very, like, they were appreciative of teachers and because they were involved with us, they weren't suspicious of us. They got to know know us. There is a weird suspicion. There is a weird suspicion. Yeah. You know, what are your motives? And I would say like, it's founded in some senses, right? Like we, we, we know things have happened and we know that things aren't okay, but the, their level of involvement and the parents choosing to get to know us eased that a lot. Yes. And so it allowed us to be there and the parents were fine with it because like I said, they wanted education, but they also saw that like, okay, when my kid feels comfortable with their teacher, they're more likely to learn. And so they knew it was a give and take. They weren't just, you know, teach, 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 trying to get us to do all of those things. They saw how their kids were so much more successful when they had that connection with us. Do you Um, feel like since it was an international school, maybe the parents were more aware of isolation that their children were facing? And so they kind of saw them more bang for the buck with the people who spend time with them. Do you feel like um, that is a thought process? I think in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. Um, It was an international school, but like 80 to 90% of our students were Korean. Um, So they had a Korean community, they, um, which is also like big, right? Like we know um, the youth suicide rate in Korea um, is very high. And so that was like very big on our minds. And um, as we were teaching, I did not know that. I actually oh, okay. didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. It is and one of the highest in the world. 
Yeah, it's wow. one of the highest in the world, and some of it is due to academic rigor. Um, wow. And so, yeah, and I, I'm not sure, I will be honest, so it's been about five years since I've been there. I'm not sure if or how those numbers have changed um, with the youth rate, but yeah, it well, it sure was very high. Not, I'm sure the <laughs> pandemic did not have a positive return on that. So that's even right. Scarier. Right. Yeah. And we, yeah, we don't know what that's like across the world right now. So yeah, I'm sure when that new data comes out, it will be very upsetting. Um, just wow. in general, but um, yeah, we knew that at least while we were there and that we had to view this differently. The parents were just so enthused about their education that, and they trusted us as professionals. And so that was really nice. Um, I think that that was more their leaning is trusting us as professionals and being really enthusiastic about education and getting to know us. Um, I don't think it was so much concerns about community because they had a, you know, a community, a good community. Yeah. When you say the terms like trusting us as professionals, it just brings up so much for me because (laughs) even bouncing back to the court system, bouncing back to even working in the social work field, but even as, um, you know, I am a parenting expert, not because I am a parent, but because I've spent over a decade working to become informed in this field you know we joked earlier about CEUs and we'll get to that in a minute but like (laughs) we do have to keep we do have to keep updated on things we are if you have a passion for this field this is what you do you know my husband and I laugh that I don't have a lot of hobbies but I actually do I have hobbies where I love to learn about working with neurodivergent children I have hobbies where I love to learn about parents with disabilities and how to help them with um you know, parenting and access to different things. And um, I always laugh that one of my favorite hobbies is keeping up with IEP regulations because Lord knows (laughs) that's a full-time hobby. Um, But uh, I do see that all across the board that even when it comes to like working with your pediatrician and as a parent yourself, do you feel like you find that you have moments where you're working with an expert who is giving you advice about your child or maybe even raising a red flag about your child. And you have this kind of knee jerk moment of like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? Um, I, I have to catch myself sometimes where I'm like, you know, I see where you're coming from. And I, that's where I think having the background that I do and having the background that you do, we can sometimes provide a greater context to things. Um, so, like, for instance, I, I mentioned my stepson. We we know that his mental health and medical professionals are suspecting neurodivergency. But on the flip-flop, his preschool teacher absolutely is saying, you know, he is astounding. He is wonderful. When you put that in the greater context, she's right. a preschool teacher. She yeah. loves that he loves to learn. She loves that he plays quietly. She loves that he's not, you know causing behavioral issues because he does kind of prefer these, you know, more quiet, contained interactions. And from a preschool teacher perspective, that is awesome. Angelic (laughs) child. But that's like, well, and that's the thing. It's it's like, like, okay, you love it, but it's not normal. You know, that level of peacefulness that you're getting from that child is not normal. So you love it, but it's kind of a self-serving 
I don't know, maybe you should be more aware. <laughs> exactly. And so it is kind of this conversation. Um, and we actually did have this conversation raised the other day of like, well, who's the expert? The medical and mental health professionals who kind of are all stacking up over here or the person who spends 40 hours a week with him and does work with other kids mm -hmm. his age. And you can volley back and forth where that context applies. Um, but it's like who's trained in what and who's the expert on what. Right. Um, because I don't think I would trust a pediatrician to tell me if my child is academically on the path. But right. I also don't know that I would trust a teacher for their medical assessment. And so from where you stand and your education, do you see gaps in that when you're working with professionals with your own kids? I mean, I know that. So yeah. <laughs> your oldest doesn't go to school, does she? Not right now. She has in the past. Uh, she, she has done like, well, like a child care school kind of thing. They had like classroom stuff. What was that like for you working with those professionals? Um, you know, I think she was so young that, <laughs> you know, I didn't put a lot of stock into anything other than just like, did she throw a toy at someone today? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like those are the Valid. kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but you know, those spheres of like, who's it like, seeing your child and what do they think? And I, I do have trouble with that because I wouldn't even trust a pediatrician a lot of the time, right? Because a pediatrician is only accepting the information that you're giving to them. And maybe yes. they see some things in the office, but you know, and, our, and that information, yeah. And that information is colored by how we view it. Yes. Um, so, you know, that is just one stage, you know, if you say I have this problem, hopefully they're referring you somewhere else. Um, yes. And I know that that's not always the case in rural um, communities. Um, but I love a good pediatrician referral. I love it when they say, I don't know. And they're yes. like, let's see, go to um, with my youngest when he was doing his weird little spider crawl, which I think you've seen videos of. Um, yeah. You know, it was you could look online and see that there were funky little crawls that kids do. And you right. could look on TikTok and Instagram and all the parenting experts or the OTs on there would be like, it's fine as long as they're meeting the other milestones. But still going to the pediatrician, I set him on the floor and I was like, he does this. <laughs> right? Is this a problem? And she goes, I don't think so. But you know what? Let's have an occupational therapist look at him. And we did. We went to the 30 yes. minute. We went to the 30 minute assessment. He got to play on this like little foam slope thing. And they poked around on his hips for a second. And they were like, here's a couple of stretches you can do to make sure that it's not impacting his hip. If he doesn't learn to walk in the next couple of months, then go ahead and give us a call. We'll see if there's anything hindering him from walking. But I love to think of like all of these people as a team, because honestly, right. if at the point of anxiety that I was at, if the right. pediatrician had told me, well, here, just pull on his leg like this and stretch it, that'll fix it. I think that would have given me more anxiety than anything else. Um, and then like you add in like my breastfeeding journey and talking to lactation consultants, my pediatrician yeah. didn't know squat about that. Yeah. But yeah. so I had that, I had that lactation hotline or that lactation <laughs> consultant. And I was like, looky here call this and that's what I tell so many parents I work with is like if you have a member of your team who isn't an expert in this find one ask your pediatrician right. ask for help because the more people who have eyes on your child you're 
you're not going to miss as much. It doesn't necessarily right. mean that you are going to miss something with your child. You are the expert on your specific child. You are the person who, right. like, as parents and even as step parents or adopted parents, that's been my experience with my kids, is you make it your life goal as a parent to know what's going on with your child. Like, that is, that's right. where you should be when. Again, joking back about my husband and his hobbies, I'm like, I have three hobbies. They walk around every single day, <laughs> and <laughs> this is my job. Okay. And um, and that's that's really hard from a perspective of like when parents have other things going on, like survival needs and stuff like that. Okay. But you know, I think from my perspective and working as long as I have in this field. I don't think I will ever turn down another member of my parenting team when it comes to, and, and I know that that's not necessarily a popular opinion because I do know know (laughs) it's hard to trust those experts. And like, it's also just hard to trust your favorite thing in the entire world to someone else who's not as invested. Right. Yeah. That's like, it is, it is really interesting. I think it's easy to make the mistake of turning down help because, and especially in like an American society, we're all very independent. Um, We tend to be a little bit more closed off than other societies. You know, we don't have as much of the village mentality. Um, So basically we, we tend to, we have this, I think it's also just a very American mentality of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, Um, whether we actually believe that or not, it shows through in things like this. So when you have an expert telling you something, or someone that's not an expert, but has seen a lot of things, right? Like, and I think that that's a very important component. Like, okay, a a teacher is not an expert on, you know, what disorders are, and they, they don't have a DSM, they've never owned one, right? So a teacher is not an expert in that, but they've seen enough kids that maybe they can say, yeah, like this one, you know, this kid is having trouble with this, this, and this, you might want to talk to your pediatrician. And then your pediatrician, and often through insurance, has to do the referral. Sometimes you're lucky you can just, right? Sometimes you're lucky and you can just contact an occupational therapist or something um, for for whatever it is. Um, But I think it's so important, like you said, to have a network of people because it is that village mentality. And, you know, it it kind of brings it back around to that of, you know, an early intervention, right? Like everything we know says early intervention is so important. It has lifelong effects. Yeah. And so if you know, like I, I will admit, like I even made the mistake with my, my almost two-year-old of he just, I just felt like he didn't want to talk and I didn't necessarily want to put him through therapy for that yeah and now I'm kind of like kicking myself because he still doesn't talk that much and he wants to and now he doesn't have the words and so that's like one of those things where I consciously know but you know looking at my child I was like he just like he's not a kid that wants to talk and I think that that's okay and he'll talk in his own time but now as he's getting closer to two he's getting more and more frustrated that he can't express himself and so I wish I had given them those tools in his tool belt at that time instead of waiting right like that's that's very much my like independence and thinking you know each child is their own person kind of thing showing through but I think 
when you see the effects. And so maybe that's my own little cautionary tale of like, I knew better and I still was like, ah, he'll be okay. Right. Like he's his own little person. Um, And I think, I think the opposite is true because having worked in the system and we are going to talk about this on the next recording um, that I get with you. Cause I get you for two. Yay. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, um, you know, I almost have the opposite because I was so heavily involved in children's lives and I was not a parent at that point. Um, right. And that had its own bite backs. You know, like I got passed over for jobs because I wasn't a parent and they were like, parents are not going to trust you because you're not a parent also. Mm-hmm. And there's that whole component right there. But I have words by the time <laughs> I know by the time <laughs> I adopted my daughter, you know, having gone through the trauma that she had gone through, um, she already had professionals involved in her life and being mm-hmm. welcomed onto the team by the professionals was so I will never forget the day that her um, therapist called me and was like, welcome to the team. We are team Rory. We are here. We want to make sure that she is okay. We are so glad to have you. And like, I kind of wish every parent had that. I kind of wish that every parent, like your pediatrician. (laughs) So like my son's pediatrician is the woman who saw him six hours after birth. And like, I still go to her, even though she was not the pediatrician we'd picked out because we found out after his birth that the pediatrician we'd picked out doesn't see anyone under the age of one. And so we were like, wow, we're scrambling for a new pediatrician. We really liked her bedside manner while I was in the hospital, while he was in the hospital. So um, we just stuck with her. But that choice was kind of hard because we hadn't done the research. We didn't know much about her, you know, and research is important in that. But relinquishing that control a little bit, sometimes I remind myself, I've known this woman for two years. I've known this woman. I She knows my child. She has seen my child. She went through the whole semi-racist situation where he's a brown child, so they thought he had jaundice, so they made us stay in the hospital longer. And then they did his blood tests, and they were like, oh, his skin is just more yellow. And I was like, yes, because he's Hispanic. And they didn't. And the re- the reason that they didn't know that is because I was marked Caucasian. And it's like, wow, what an interesting. And and she was the doctor who walked in and was like, I hate to put it in these terms. And she looked right at my husband and said, like, I hate to put it in these terms. But they looked at the mother's paperwork and not yours and assumed that your baby was Caucasian. And so he looked like he had severe jaundice and was flagged for that. And you guys just had doesn't to have the same hospital. pink. <laughs> Exactly. And you guys have had to stay in the hospital an extra like 18 hours. And thank God it wasn't really, really long. But it's like she literally looked at my husband and was like, I'm sorry. Uh, This was a slightly racist situation. And I will work to do better when I see him from now on. And she has never like she has always been really aware of that. She has always paid attention to that when she met um, our other son. She even commented of like, you are so beautiful. I wish you'd been in the hospital with us, with us that day. Like there's a humility there. And right. that went a long way to welcoming her onto our team. Because right. if she had just been like, well, it's y'all's fault because nobody flagged it back at us because we were new parents, you know, we were. So we were like, you say there's something right. wrong with our baby. Cool. Fix it. Please, God, right. fix it. 
Like, right. um, we trust you. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I <laughs> super wish that there was an opportunity to have, I know that you're supposed to go and interview pediatricians but while you're pregnant, but often that's not always the choice. And I wish there was some way to welcome, like I secretly love, um, and not secretly, but I do love when people are engaged with like doulas and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And even midwives, because in like England, talking about international stuff in England, your midwife comes and checks on you like every three days, right. they come to your house. And right. so you immediately, you immediately Imagine. have that village. You immediately right. have that village of someone who saw your baby three days ago and can tell you, no, they are plumping up. They are gaining weight. It's very small right. amounts. Your baby is okay. Your milk is coming. Like, you know, just those little things Ugh. that we deal with as parents who will look at the diaper and go, Hey, your poop's fine. <laughs> the poop is right. fine. Or like, oh, the mental health implications of that too, because yes, there's someone not seeing mom so and her up and down throughout that yes. period. Oh, so yeah. I just, I think it's interesting being on both sides. And that was one reason that I really wanted to talk to you about this is because we've both been part of other families' villages, even some families right. who did not want us to be part of them. Ugh. And um, Coming in the next episode. <laughs> exactly. And then also, you know, the other side of having to build our children's villages. And I, right. um, I don't know, maybe there's pros and cons because maybe I'm too welcoming to other people on my village. I'm like, please come and see my child and tell me if there's anything wonderful or not okay about him. <laughs> but there is, you know, there is something to be said for trying to rebuild the culture of village around motherhood and around childhood. Um, And I think that's, that's a really big thing. And I think, um, you know, in regards to motherhood, something that is often missed is those people are seeing you too. And I think that that is so important (laughs) because they're having conversations with you. They're getting a pulse on how you're doing. And I think that that is something that is very easily overlooked. You know, if, if you're in distress, if you have a good pediatrician, if you have, you know, someone that you're seeing regularly, they're going to be able to say like, Hey, are you okay? It's not, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's incredible how it doesn't just surround the child. It surrounds the parent too. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. I love that perspective. Well, I'm happy that you're part of my village, and I'm happy to be part of your village, whether or not you like it or yes. not. I've just, I've just introduced myself. Hello, you, I'm you part are of your village. Welcome, you're a welcome part of my village. Um, you're a really good mom. You really are. Here, thank you. You are a very wonderful mom. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll say bye. <laughs>